Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Kreppi and he is Aaron Fentress and we'll get into more and more for the Oregon Ducks here in the last week. Obviously we'll get into quite a bit as you might imagine on the new coaching staff and quarterback transfer and all the big things that uh, naturally have been writing about and that there are to talk about and we will get into the Alamo Bowl Slightly as well, as yes, there is actually a football game in just over a week uh, in San Antonio. So with that game ahead, we will certainly get into that. But we'll start with the two uh, primary hires uh, to the assistant coaching staff uh, for Dan Lanning, that being Kenny Dillingham uh, on the offensive coordinator side and Matt Pallage for the defensive coordinator, co-defensive in terms of title and semantics, uh, by the way, that they're doing things so far. So, uh, first impressions, Aaron, of uh, the two hires to Dan Landing staff. And obviously, again, we know that there's still many to come, uh, but that these are the first two that uh, are officially done and announced and uh, set and whatnot. Um, I mean, not. I wouldn't say I'm blown away or that I'm not, you know, at all impressed by the guys. I just kind of feel like they're, they're coordinators and, Lanning believes in them, and we'll, we'll see what they do. Uh, the OC has had some good years. He's had some down years, like anyone would have in terms of points, and some of that can be um, attributed to the talent you have around you that you're working with as well. But I just felt like, you know, they, he hired a couple dudes that he likes, and we'll sort of see how they do. I, but I wasn't blown away or underwhelmed. Yeah, I think it's clear so far that he's going to be hiring a younger staff yeah. so far. I mean, now there's still eight more positions to go. So before people like jump to the conclusion that this is all going to be a staff of guys in their thirties, which it may very well be, uh, which again, for those who are not necessarily the most avid of college football, uh, viewers, uh, and, and follow everything from an assistant coaching staffs and things like that. Um, you might want to take a look at Michigan and what Jim Harbaugh did this past year. Yes, atop the food chain is Jim Harbaugh, but he changed the coaching staff dramatically to where that entire coaching staff is in their 30s. They're in the playoff. So the idea of like <laughs> relative experience or inexperience or whatnot, uh, relative to certain, that I, I think we're starting to see an age now in college football, the start of it at least, where that is going to become a little bit less relevant a little bit a little bit i stress little because for as many people who want to rush to get ahead of themselves and say that their experience is of no consequence or that that doesn't matter uh you still get reminded that atop the food chain in both college football and the nfl are nick saban and bill belichick so no matter (laughs) no matter what you do you still have to run into somebody who does have proven experience and acumen in those things having said that You've seen, obviously, Sean McVay and his many disciples get through on the NFL side. And in the college side, you're starting to see a rash of younger coaches. Yes, now Dan Lanning and Marcus Freeman being two 35-year-old defensive coordinators who promoted to head coaches. But also, and I'm forgetting who the other um, uh, now FBS head coach or Power 5 head coach in the 30s is as well. But ultimately, recruiting is a young man's game. And as assistant coaches, coordinators, or head coaches get older, outside of extremes like Mario Cristobal was, most head coaches, and especially assistant coaches, they can't stand recruiting. <laughs> it's not it's not what they want to do. They don't they don't fancy themselves. You know why would a coach who's in late fifties, sixties, or approaching seventy, if they're still going, and they've proven this over 30, 40 years of coaching? Want to go out on the road, as as many of them will refer it in the colloquialisms, begging season. Why in the yeah. world would they want to subject themselves to talking to you know sixteen and seventeen year olds and, and doing that on a you know constant basis and having to learn everything from the uh, uh, social media and technological side of things? From uh, you, you think you want to find a sixty five year old coach or coordinator and tell and try informing them about Twitter Spaces? I mean, come on. Let's be let's be a little realistic here, you know. I mean, just just be. You got to be, you know. I mean, I, I don't know how old you, some of your parents are out there, or grandparents, or what have you. But if you've had those conversations on a personal level, a private level, now say, all right, now it's, your job is to go and 
you know, wade in these waters. You know what Snapchat is, Dad? You know, you want to, like, come on. You know, so naturally that's not really part of their, that's not what they want to do. They want to focus on the sport part or the development part or the X's and O's and everything else. The recruiting side, not really their favorite part of it. Well, right. lo and behold, yeah, when you have a younger staff where they're well-versed in all these things, technologically speaking, and then also obviously have picked up a good amount on the game front as well, yeah, it makes sense. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, that's going to automatically lead to success. I'm saying that you're starting to see more in college football as the newer generation of coaches start to take bigger roles across the sport, not just what so far Oregon's done with Dan Lanning and his, his coordinator hires, but you're seeing it elsewhere. Again, you saw it at Michigan this past year, seen it at Oklahoma before, seen it at plenty of places. You know, Every staff has some element of younger coaches on it, but I think you're starting to see now it's being impressed upon more and more and more coaches that, yeah, the entire element, like, the landscape changes a lot faster on the college football side. Ask anybody now about, well, the early signing period. It's only been around for like five years. But in the span of five years when it started, we didn't have the portal or the one-time transfer. The portal came around shortly thereafter. That changed things. Now the one-time transfer comes in. That's changing things. And now we're back to examining whether or not the the early signing period is even necessary because... Oh, well, we didn't foresee this. Well, some people did, in fairness. The point is, is I mentioned all these things to say having a younger element involved I don't think is a bad thing at all, especially at the coordinator position. Um, to Kenny Dillingham, what he brings to the table by way of, obviously, well, and Matt Pallage for that matter, his their familiarity with Dan Lanning, I think obviously played a pretty big role, uh, as you might imagine, in, in their hires in the first place. But... But what Pallage has done from a special team standpoint, and they haven't outlined specifically, uh, you know, that he'll serve a certain role in, in the special teams realm, but I would think, I don't think they're going to let his acumen there uh, go to waste. Mm-hmm. That is an area and a facet of this team and this program that needs a monumental overhaul. Monumental. And I'm not saying that on the kicking side. Right. I'm talking about they have been dreadful on punt and kick coverage for three seasons. And everywhere that Pallage has been, there's been an all-conference performer or performers at every stop he's been in special teams. Well, yeah, Oregon's done okay at the return game at times, individually. Certainly done quite well at the punt return at different times for the past couple of seasons. But they need a overhaul there. They need a thorough examination and start start from zero, basically. Now, and Bobby Williams is a fine coach, but it, you know the results weren't always there the past couple of seasons. So, ultimately, I think bringing in these guys... You don't have a you don't have the length of resume necessarily compared to a coach who's considerably older, but at the same time, I, I don't view that as a negative in college football. I don't. I think newer ideas or fresher ideas, or especially on the recruiting side, and these guys all have recruiting prowess. I think that matters a lot, a lot more than fans necessarily sometimes understand because, yeah, you know, it's it's the less glamorous part of the job. It's it's the part that you don't you don't get to see on television, uh, because you know it's not it's not spectator sport the recruiting part of it. Not that recruiting isn't heavily covered or, you know, either by us or others, uh, and our colleague Andrew Nemec and others. But it's it's not you know it's not televised. All the phone calls, the text messages, the Zoom conversations, and everything else that goes into recruiting, camps, right. all that fine stuff. So, all part of it. But uh, obviously, the relationship that Dillingham has with Bo Nix would say that that probably had a factor uh, in his transfer to Oregon. So things coming a bit full circle where Auburn's quarterback in the past three years who started his career against the Ducks in the 2019 season opener, which we all know how that ended, ends up heading to Eugene for his last season or seasons. He's got two years of eligibility. Uh, your thoughts on the news uh, from Sunday? He's playing golf, isn't he? Well, I mean. Don't you think? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to begin to project. We're not even in the calendar year 22. Now well, you want me to project who the starter is going to be in 23. Well, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just saying that based on the fact that he's more than likely not going to be necessarily a NFL prospect. So maybe he's going to be like, well, two unless again, he gets beaten out. 
don't for for what like a million things of don't know, don't know. I mean, look, does he have the the prototypical size, the measurables? No, he's not six four and you know two hundred thirty five pounds. The Bonex <clears throat> is not of that stature. Having said that, nobody wants to be away from the NFL longer than you absolutely have to be, and. Generally speaking, four years is pretty good. If he ends up being the starter, and I say if because I'm not proclaiming who the starter is in 2022 yet. I mean, I, again, we're not even in the calendar year. We've got we've got we've got time to debate this. We've got time. <laughs> it's, what, it's what spring practice is for. I think we'll see a little bit of this. But be that as it may, um, if he ends up being the starter and has a good season, a, a particularly good season, why not? You know, I, I can't say oh, for yeah, sure that he'll play a sec. Because, look, I mean, was I anybody thinking that. in terms of Joe Burrow of, you know, had, well, he ended up spending a couple of years at LSU, but ahead of, the, obviously, his final year and winning the Heisman and everything that he did, nobody thought in terms of number one overall pick. You know, so somebody, and I'm not beginning to project that Bo Nix is going to do something to that. My James Crepia predicts that Bo Nix will have a similar career to Joe yeah, Burrow hardly, right here hardly. on the Ducks Confidential. My, my point simply is that... <laughs> I, I can't begin to project or predict what, what Bo Nix will do on the field or for how many seasons more at Oregon or anywhere else. I have no idea. Um, I, I, I can only go off of what we've seen uh, and what we know and, and the evidence uh, before us in that regard. But uh, obviously first and foremost, played, for, this was, played for Dillingham. First and foremost, well, this, what? I was going to say, first no, and no. foremost, this was a given that they were going to get a transfer, right? Like I, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, was, I, I couldn't believe people were actually arguing that this wasn't going to be a thing because so many people are still so enamored with Ty Thompson because of the five-star thing and the recruiting hype and all that goes with that, that in their mind they've already made him out to be the next Mariota or Herbert and can't accept the fact that he's a developmental project like most quarterbacks are. And I, I actually absolutely believe that this staff probably has some communications with the, the former staff, and this staff being three people so far, probably the head coach, about where the quarterbacks were, and we're probably told, yeah, you probably need a transfer because we're not sure about these youngsters yet. They're all talented, et cetera, et cetera, but they weren't even close to beating out Brown this past year. We all know Brown had struggles, so they had to get a veteran guy. And the fact that they got one who was recruited by and played for the new offensive coordinator is absolutely a perfect situation, and he has a lot of experience, and a lot of experience in the best conference by far in football. Yes, he had his ups and downs, but he had his ups and downs against really tough schedules. So I, I think it was just an absolute perfect marriage. And also, he's a guy that although he's pretty good, he's not great to the point where if Ty Thompson, who I'm projecting to be the best quarterback out of the three still, uh, if he develops and matures and grows, that he can't beat this guy out because I do believe Ty Thompson has more uh, natural passing gifts than Bo Nix does. So it's like it's a it's a veteran guy who can win games for you, but he's not someone who comes in and it's like, well, there's no way Ty Thompson can beat him out. If Ty Thompson matures and grows, he definitely could beat this guy out. And if Ty Thompson beats him out, well, then now you've got a potential star quarterback on your hands. That's yeah, my take. You needed you needed a veteran quarterback. On the roster. Yeah. You know, I don't think having the desire to go out and get a transfer quarterback this offseason at any point was a bad thing at all. And, again, I'm with you. I thought it was kind of a given that they were going to add somebody. I didn't think, Did I think it was the number one priority compared to some other positions on the roster? No. But at the really? same time, did it? No. Oh, man. Number one priority. Number one. High priority. <laughs> Sure. It's the most important a position. Priority. It's the yeah. most important position. Yeah. Oh, okay. But there are some other positions that, by numbers, are very thin that I think they need to add, and they will add. I don't. It's not even just a matter of what I think. Forget about what I think. Any analysis of the numbers will tell you. Forget about what you think about the players, the talent, stars, or any other stuff. <laughs> They have to buys. add. They have to add at receiver and corner. I mean, they have to add bodies, uh, and you're just unbelievably thin at those two positions. No, other than a service academy, no team at the Power Five level <laughs> is going into a season with six scholarship receivers, and that's just not. That's not a thing. So they're going to add there. Right. So that's why I say, in terms of 
number one priority, I still think you know there's some other positions that are higher. But that adding a veteran quarterback, again, there's no replacing experience. There's no simulating it. There's no – you either have it or you don't. Bo Nix brings 34 career starts to the table. That's that's a lot. That's significant you know, compared to zero uh, for three – for three freshman quarterbacks who, no matter how physically talented they may be, no matter what their recruiting, uh, you know, hype surrounding them was, no matter any of that, they haven't, nobody's operated, none of the three of them have operated in the offense that Dillingham's going to be installing. And Nick's played for him in 2019. Having said that, it was still Gus Malzahn's offense. Now, Dillingham comes from that tree as a whole, Norvell, basically runs a, a variation thereof. If anything, there might be a little bit more passing um, than Melzahn stuff anyway, but I think the base part of it is there, and we'll, we'll obviously go over this with Dillingham eventually. We'll get into it more in the offseason, all that kind of stuff. But point is, is having a quarterback who comes in with experience that has a base and fundamental understanding of the offense and the scheme that's going to be installed at a time where in – February and March and you know throughout spring is going to be the install process and spring practice and those things yeah having somebody who has that is invaluable it's massive you need to have somebody like that and when you have all these quarterbacks in the transfer portal at this time and because Oregon's a quarter school where they start the winter quarter you know January 3rd yeah having somebody show up in December at the beginning of January is very important because you need to have, you know, theoretically, you need to have somebody on campus then, in order to have them ready for the start of spring. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to have a real shot, if you're a quarterback also looking to go into a place like Oregon, you want to, you want to do it now. You can't say, oh well, I'll miss the first five practices of spring and then I'll show up midway through. Uh, I won't be ready to go until the final week or week and a half, and then uh, I'll be ready to go. You know, I'll be, I'll, I'll have the full off season install and all that. No. Why, why put yourself behind the eight ball? If you're if you're able to do it, if you've graduated and Bonex has, if you're able to come in and get rolling, go ahead. Now, and again, we'll see how the rest of the roster comes together and who's in, who's out, who goes pro, who transfers, all, all, all that stuff. We'll see. But as a whole, bringing in a veteran quarterback, I, I'm with you. I thought it was going to end up happening, and I'm not surprised that it ended up happening before January, and I'm not surprised that it ended up being Bo Nix, to be quite honest with you. Once Kenny Dillingham was the offensive coordinator, I began yeah. hearing some murmurings that that was a distinct possibility. And like, all right, well, here you go. Now, it's uh, for, for me, it's just a bit ironic because I covered Bo Nix's recruitment, right? <laughs> and, and then his first game, albeit uh, you know while covering a different program, and then now you know it seems like he's following me. But short of that, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny uh, how life works. But no. It, for those who want to get into comparing stats and every which thing, the, the, the context that I'll be able to provide insofar as, because I have, you know, I've watched a decent number of, of some of those games of the past couple of seasons, not every one by any stretch. Auburn's offensive line for the past three years has been dreadful. Dreadful. I mean, horrific. So, oh, well, Nix is a backyard player and he's gunslinger and stuff. Well, yeah, those things are just playing true. He is. However, the constant moving of the pocket and on the run and scrambling that he had to do, so much of that was because their offensive line was just playing bad. No way around it. Really bad. Like, arguably ahead of only Vanderbilt and the SEC bad at times. Um, they were really, really bad. So that's part of it where that was skills that he already brought to the table, and then he had to rely on those skills a lot uh, in order to survive, for one. With a player like that, in the regardless of what he's got around him, you have to take the good with the bad. And the good, and this really is, like for Oregon fans who are just waking up to and starting to delve into who Bo Nix is and all that and don't follow the SEC and may not even know that where Auburn is in, in the country other than in the SEC. Uh, <laughs> he, in the Auburn circles over the course of his career, there was the labeling of 
on on each Saturday, did good Bonix or bad Bonix show up? <laughs> and what they meant by that was, when I say the good with the bad, it was on the good end. It was the Houdini acts that he would pull. It was the evading and eluding pressure when it looked like he was sacked three times over and managing to somehow stay upright and throw a pass and hit a touchdown and go like, how in the world did he just do that? And then there was the bad where he would do some of those things and he would take a sack when it was an inopportune time. Or he would throw an interception and you go, why would you even throw that pass? And yeah, well, he was also 19 or 20 for one. Uh, two, he was getting pressured a lot, like I say. And three, he was also playing in the SEC West where they had some pretty good defenses. Uh, so those things came along along the way. Um, but the good is the highs of highs. You can look up the highlights of either what he's done against Alabama at different times or what he did against LSU this past year where I mentioned that Houdini act, and that was a prime example of it where Auburn hadn't won at LSU since 1999. They play there every other year. <laughs> I've been to some of those games. They found every way imaginable over 22 years to lose games at LSU. And the quarterback who breaks that streak was Bo Nix and did so on one of the more absolutely unreal sort of backyard plays you'll ever see. He brings that to the table. Playmaking and and keeping a play alive kind of stuff. Like I say, also brings a level of gunslinger recklessness to the table. With a better line with better all-around skill position players around him, I do think it will be interesting to see how he gets utilized best uh, and, and how those weapons are utilized by him best uh, throughout the spring. Before we start getting into about the next season and all deal with the spring. <laughs> what does he have all around him? What does the line end up looking like? And what do the receiver and running back positions end up looking like? And yeah, how, how to integrate him into uh, this new offense, uh, again, that they'll be installing and, and get those pieces around them as well. And for all the other quarterbacks for that matter. But like I say, you're just talking about Knicks because he's the new guy and what he brings and those sorts of things. But can you? how do you think the fan base will accept or not the vertical passing game element if it is not radically higher than what it was, Aaron? Oh, I think they're going to lose their minds. I mean, <laughs> I mean, people want to see the ball pushed downfield. And, you know, there's probably no one in the state of Oregon who can better connect with the idea of quarterback frustration than me since I'm a Bears fan, right? So I feel like what the Bears fan, what the Ducks fans went through last fall is what I've gone through for most of my life as a Bears fan. You want a quarterback who could actually threaten downfield, and Brown really wasn't that kind of guy. And so when you look at Knicks, it's like he hasn't necessarily been that guy either, and maybe it's for some reasons, like you explain offensive line issues, et cetera, et cetera. But regardless, he just isn't that guy like like a Herbert, obviously, and Herberts don't come along that often. So I think, again, the fantasy comes back to Ty Thompson is supposed to be that guy. And I think the fear is, and this is just based on just, you know, I haven't polled all Oregon fans, but I jumped into spaces just to listen for a little bit for as long we as saw I saw you in there for I a could, good three, I, four minutes. Long, yeah. yeah, as long as I could stand it. And once I heard the standard is to win now, I just was like, okay, I'm out. Um, and I just think there's this feeling that, uh-oh, wh- why are we going this route if Ty Thompson is the next Herbert or Mariota? And if we are going this route, what is that going to mean? Because Bo Nix is not a star quarterback because if he were a star quarterback, he wouldn't be leaving Auburn probably. So what's happening? And then you look at his net, you look at his stats and they're pretty similar to Brown's stats in a lot of different ways, but I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think they're necessarily the same player. I think Nix is a slightly better player. And I think if you put him in an optimal situation, I think he can do more for you than Brown. But in a lot of ways, it's still kind of similar. It's like a guy who, you know, isn't necessarily going to wow you with his passing prowess. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think there's I think there's a lot of concern out there about what this means and in a lot of different directions. But they had to go this way. They had to bring in this guy. I think they can win with him. I think if everything else is optimal, you can win ten games again with this guy. I don't think he's going to hold you back in that regard. But he's not going to elevate. That's the thing. He's not going to elevate and carry and make things. You know, it, it just mask all problems you might have, like a Marcus could or like a Herbert could. And that's why I think it's best for the program that Ty Thompson de- develops and beats this guy out. Uh, if he doesn't, and he's the backup, and Nix is your guy, then th- there's some concern, but still an upgrade over Brown. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. 
I think that, again, obviously Brown is going to be in the here and now. Obviously, people have already long since formed their opinions there. And nothing, certainly I'm going to say, is going to really change that at this point. But when you look at the numbers and you see ultimately that this is a 10-win team that could end up being an 11-win team who competed for a third straight conference title. And when you look at the losses themselves, yeah, much to, much to Aaron's chagrin, uh, that they that, that two of the three losses came to the same opponent, and you tip your cap to, to Utah, and obviously in both those games. But they didn't lose either of those games merely because, because Anthony Brown couldn't right. throw the ball down the field as far as you may want him to, ultimately. They lost them because he couldn't compensate for everything else being dog crap. They also <laughs> were down in both of those games. Their receiving core was was right. trimmed down some of their best players in yeah. both games. And again, yeah. that's not and, the only thing either. And and turnovers, no. and defense, yeah. and special the teams. Game and stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. Again, you can go on and on and on and on. But right. bottom line, like they didn't lose merely because of quarterback play in either one of those games. They Correct. just did. Um, I mean, you just got to call it what it is. It just wasn't the case. So It was an all-around butt-whooping. Yeah, both in, bo- in both times. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of maximizing the skills that he brought to the table, I'd argue that they have this season. Uh, that he, you know, He's one of the top 10, 12 runners at the quarterback position on the season. And I'm not just going by rushing yards. I'm talking about like if you look at QBR, and I'm not a huge guy in that particular statistic, but some people are. I mean, Kyle Whittingham said that is the statistic he looks at. And assessing quarterbacks. That's, you know, the guy who just won coach of the year in the conference and won the conference. So that's what he looks at. Well, if you look at that in the rushing perspective, Anthony Brown is one of the best mobile quarterbacks in the country. And again, at times, he won games for Oregon in the fourth quarter with with his arm or his legs, usually his legs. So he did those things too. Now, I grant you, hey, was he driving the ball down the field Again, to the level and extremes that you know Oregon fans fancy and, and fantasize about. No, he wasn't. But again, I bring it back to not only the quarterback, but also the wide receiving core as a whole. Not any one player. Not I'm talking about in the collective, in the sense of this is not a wide receiving core of a bevy of first and second round picks. They're not right now. They and Mario made it clear ago. several. Mario made it clear during the season several times that receivers were effing up. Like, there were receiver mistakes. And I mean, I, you cover them more than I do. The few times I would jump in on, on Zooms, I would hear him bring it up a lot, that there were route issues, there were depth issues, there were consistency issues, and those things I obviously heard a quarterback. But anyway, continue. No, and there were other times also where <clears throat> I think at the moment right now, particularly – the last couple of weeks, there's been a bit of uh, interesting portrayals of blocking by some receivers, and uh, particularly early in the season, if not throughout in some cases, that, that may not have always been as fantastic as has been portrayed at times over the last couple of weeks, but be that as it may... Oh, I'm sure the wide, receivers not, were boy, the wide receivers were probably boycotting. No, I want more targets than I want blocks. At the, at the beginning, <laughs> in the season opener, there was on back-to-back plays, <sighs> I can recall, in fact, a safety rolling down to make a tackle on Travis Dye on back-to-back plays that I think were basically almost the same play where if the outside receiver had just not just blocked his man but just come up to hit the safety, Travis would still be running. So... And I'm just pointing out that there's other parts of the game that sometimes come in and talk about explosive plays and things. Well, all right, these were ground plays, but <clears throat> could have a 60, 70 yard touchdown run in there, you know, a couple times. <laughs> and I'm not just pointing out yeah, one game almost... either. There were there were instances, and again, that's every team in the country has these sorts of right. things. But point is, is when you want to say like, oh well, you know, how come some of these plays were missing at times? Well. Sometimes they were called. Sometimes they were they were there for the taking. There's there's ultimately, you can put people in position. They got to go out and execute it, too. True. And you know the difference between college and the NFL is on all sides. In the NFL, 
Aaron and I have this podcast and we're talking about an NFL team and we're just calling out exactly by name who you are, what you're doing, <laughs> you know, because if you do it and you don't do it well enough for long enough, you're not going to be there. In college, not really exactly how we get our jollies in any stretch of the imagination to start railing against, you know, overall execution on a play-to-play basis on, you know, the finest points. We don't have all 22 in those things, but when certain things are obviously the film don't lie, it's what's there, and you're able to see it, you know, you, you, you try to paint with a little bit more of a broader brush, in order, you know, because it's not about trying to single out uh, college players and whatnot. It's not like they're going out there trying to dog it. You know, you know that everybody's trying to give their efforts, and these are still in the development process. That's what college football is for, but mistakes happen. Whether that be by quarterbacks or defenses or wide receivers or whoever, it's part of it. Yes. So it's not, you know, my, my thing is, is they still managed to win 10 games despite a whole bunch of injuries and other things. And at the moment, and we'll get into the bowl obviously a little bit in the discussion here, but it's like either that's being totally lost or forgotten or dismissed. And I don't know how many programs out there can just dismiss. 10 win seasons. <laughs> I think we've Unfortunately, we've gotten to that like, point with some of Yeah, them. it's like we've we've just gone completely off the rails here um by way of like context of what success is. And I know the playoff has been part of that discussion and you know that that certainly is a big part, but mercy. Like we just we're losing a little bit by way of the context of this stuff. Back to oh, the, yeah. the quarterback bit for a second. And and the idea of bringing in uh, a transfer. I was thinking about this the other night and I be one of the things I look into more in, in January and February in the offseason. If you follow, again, if you're really in the recruiting realm of it all, if you follow like the Elite 11 stuff, right? If you think of it, think of it in the broader scope, in the bigger terms, over a five year period, there are going to be 55, 60 quarterbacks who went to the Elite 11 who are in college football after five years. Now, there will be a good number of them who were off to the NFL after three, after four, etc. So that's why I say that the maximum number would be somewhere around 60 or so, give or take. Because it used to be a hard 11, and now it's starting to expand a little bit beyond 11. But be that as it may. If those are the top players, is my point, right? Top 10, top 15 quarterbacks every year. All right, how many Power 5 programs are there? All right, so... 60? It's getting 60? to a point, right? My point is, is that everybody, even the most delusional of everybody, <laughs> can start. I think that we're seeing a marketplace <clears throat> adjustment with the one-time transfer in particular, between grad transfer, one-time transfer, and the portal. I think we're going to start to see a major marketplace adjustment break this down in economic terms in college football where if you have the starting experience that level of development and that level of pedigree to what you brought to the table in the first place those are going to be the guys who end up in the starting jobs at no less than half of the power five every single season because if they're not, then they're going to go transfer somewhere else where they can be. And that's just sure. going to be what it is. Because if you put yourself and you say, well, I was a top 10 quarterback three years ago. I lost out a starting job here, but I can go over there and I can start there tomorrow. You know, believe it or not, someone has to start for Kansas. Yes, it does have to, you know, they, they do have to play a quarterback. So my point is, I think because of the one-time transfer, you're going to start to see a little bit more parity. But I think you're also going to get to see that quarterback play as a whole the developmental aspect and the who's the backup or who's the number three or who's the number four, I think that's going to become harder and harder and harder across college football to see guys willing to sit. And I'm not knocking the players for this. I'm saying that I think you're going to continue to see a higher amount of churn at that position. I think the days of, you know, for fans old enough to remember this, of Tom Brady and Drew Henson competing for who's starting on a week-to-week basis for two seasons are gone. That is never happening again. Ever. 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 
That is never happening again. You are never having that situation. You could say, oh, what are you talking about? Alabama had all these first-round quarterbacks year after year. Yeah, well, Jalen Hurts did transfer at the end of his career. <laughs> he did go to Oklahoma. And then by the time Mac you know, Jones came along, well, yeah. Then there was a, they, they created a gap there eventually. But, yes, ultimately, I mean, look at what, what's happened in Ohio State. Ohio State had all those guys on paper this year. And they didn't know definitively, yes, it was assumed that Stroud would be the starter going into the season. Then they land yours. Well, what's happened? Stroud won the job, had a Heisman caliber season. And then in, by the end of the season, they're not even at the Rose Bowl. And one of the backups goes in the portal. And yours, who spent three months on campus, is in the transfer portal and goes to Texas. Of course. So point it. That's my point. I'm using other examples yeah, from other schools no, to point I, out, I, like I, these guys aren't going to sit. They're not going to sit anywhere. Not at Oregon. Not at Ohio well, State. Not at Alabama. Not at Clemson. Not anywhere. Now I would hope though that someone like okay, like Ty, like, like Ty's not transferring, which I, I didn't think he would. I know there was a lot of fear that he might, uh, but you know, to me, worst case scenario, if Nick's only plays the one year then Ty would be in line to start 2023, assuming he didn't beat out Bo Nix to begin, and still have three years left. So in that situation, I would hope a guy would say, okay, I'm the backup, but I'm the backup behind a guy who's three years ahead of me. So Those the situations, count, I The hope counterpoint would. to it being that, <clears throat> couldn't you say in, in that perspective, that person could have said the same thing or thought the same thing this year about the 2022 season? Until I know, but that, somebody but else you comes still have, But you still have three years left. It's not like yes. you're getting to a yes. crunch where you only going to have one yes. or right. you're backing up someone the same 100%. grade. And that's 100%. the thing where no one's going to say and back up someone younger than them or the same grade. Because <laughs> then you may never see the field. Right. You just won't. And so, yeah, you got to bounce. And with the, with the transfer portal the way it is now and you don't have to sit, you don't have to sit out a year, hell yeah, people are out. It's just it's going to be the wild wild west, and I agree with you 100. I said this said this the other day in another show that you're going to see a spreading out of the talent differently because teams who are stacked can't hold guys hostage like they could for as long because now people can just bail, and that's why I I mean I I cannot wait to see what Lanning does with Georgia's roster. There's got to be some four star guys on Georgia's roster who are stuck, who may never become starters until their fifth year who he could pull to Oregon to fill in gaps. I mean, I, I would imagine that's going to be in play. We'll see. But um, no, I 100% agree. It's, and I think it's good for college football because I, I, I'm always amazed sometimes. You, you Like you look at the recruiting classes of the top-tier programs, and they'll have 10 four-star receivers on their roster. It's like, well, they can't all be stars. You know, so have those guys spread out to other places. You create Jameson you know, Williams. I think, I think a, better, a better sport. Jameson Williams this year. Yeah, he left. He was the number four receiver at Ohio State. He was in the Heisman conversation at Alabama. Yeah, isn't it crazy? But but at and the same time, like, and I'm not knocking Williams. He was obviously an incredible player. But at the same time, who you who were you taking off the field if you were Ohio State? <laughs> we taking right, Alave exactly. Wilson and Smith and Jigba off the field? Really? Right. I mean, right. you have to run the air raid and, otherwise to get all those guys on the field. And that's and that's why it cracks me up sometimes when people. Some of these players even choose to go to places like that where they can see how stacked they are, but they're they're, they're so full of themselves. All of them, I'm saying that this is wrong. They, sh- you know, they're obviously very good that they think, oh, well, I'm gonna beat those guys out. Are but you? that was this is an issue that goes back. <laughs> this is oldest day of the flood because USC <clears throat> with Pete Carroll had, I believe, at one point, I I would have to go back and remember now. This is like 20 years ago. I think at one point after their last national title, I want to say the Trojans had. Eight or nine uh, Army All-American running backs mm-hmm. on the roster, which now no was one would no one it? would have that many running backs <clears throat> on a roster. Period. But they had like eight or nine Army All-Americans. Remember, this I, was before the Under Armour game. This is before, like, this is when the Army game was the only game, and they had like a half a dozen five stars. Didn't, <laughs> didn't SI didn't SI do an article? On, probably, probably, yeah. I think I, I kind of remember an SI article, and it was a picture of like the running backs doing drills, and like all five of these guys who are all four and five star studs, and it was basically who's going to replace Reggie Bush kind of thing. And I'm like, they got like eight guys who sh- it probably should be other places where they would be the guy now, but they all go to USC to be Reggie Bush, and they all think they're better than the other seven guys. And it's at that like, time, the portal didn't exist, and these other things. So, bottom right. line, like, you it's, it's an exactly. issue that's happened before, it's happened on the West Coast before, it's happened. 
but now things the timeline for everybody to win and succeed everybody has to be in win now mode everybody everybody who's who's paying at that level and who has the ability to win at that level and the resources to win at that level everyone's in win now mode all the time is what we're getting at is there the, even the quote-unquote developmental programs can necessarily be truly developmental anymore. Everybody <laughs> has to be in win-now mode because put yourself in the coach's shoes on the age that we're in, the athletic director is going to come knocking on your door if you, don't have, if you don't have a solid quarterback, either who you developed or who you landed in the portal. If quarterback play at a Power 5 school is not really good, somebody is coming knocking on your door going, why who's failed and generally speaking if you're an offensive head coach that could be a really short time for you (laughs) and if you're a defensive head coach they're going to be breathing down the neck of the offensive coordinator in a hurry so that's why everybody has to be in that mode now with the with what's changed you say well it's always been that way yeah right but it's really got cranked that much further in the last two three years because of the changes with the portal and now the one-time transfer it's just gotten so much faster. And in case again, you could look at even Georgia. You know, Justin Fields was there. He left, and I think he, you know, he's now he's playing for Aaron's other team. So there you go. Uh, he's playing for the Bears. So you know, <laughs> not again. There's there's plenty of really good places who have guys who leave. Again, Alabama had Hurts, and he won SEC Player of the Year, and. Had to end his career at Oklahoma and still obviously did very well for himself and is playing in the That's NFL. Crazy. Fields, yeah, was a backup. Went to Ohio State, did tremendous. Now he's in the NFL, first round pick, etc. So it's not just a oh, it's a Pac-12 thing or an Oregon thing. There is plenty of places in college football, really good places, successful places, where quarterback turnover is part of it, where transfers are part of it, in or out. It's it's part of the game now. Um, so the idea of you know that. The dream of the the four or five star developed into you know the future first round guy like that every quarterback is going to be the Herbert story or the Mariota story. Uh, yeah, you have those instances, but not everybody's going to be that guy all the time everywhere. Nope. It's a it's a thing that you want. I, I understand why you'd want it, but it's not everywhere, and it's not every year for sure. To some of the departures. Uh, that have occurred for Oregon ahead of this bowl game. Then we'll touch on the bowl game briefly. Uh, Devin Williams at receiver, Michael Wright, both declaring for the draft and opting out of the game. Obviously, uh, some players have gone, and for that matter, Kayvon Thibodeau, which is hardly hardly a surprise, but that happened a bit earlier. And, of course, the transfers of DJ James, Jason Jones as well. And, of course, the injuries and other things that happened during the season. So Oregon is thin at those two spots, Ooh. at receiver and corner in particular. But your thoughts on... The issue as a whole, Aaron, of, of the players who opt out of bowl games uh, for draft purposes and, and doing that, which, again, we go back five, six years ago when it was McCaffrey and forgetting who the second player was that year. But at that conversation at that time was, oh, will this negatively impact their draft stock? And now here we are five, six years later. Now it's like 50 guys across the country are doing it. It's like, right. <laughs> what are you, crazy? These guys go, no, they're off and away. Don't worry about it. Well, um, Freeman set out the Vegas Bowl, right? On the morning of the game. I covered that game. I just couldn't remember. I didn't remember him playing it. So, yeah, he set out. Yep. Yeah. It I, was the, uh, people if you're coming, if you're, coming you're committed, and morning of the game said, <clears throat> nah, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, look, if it's a major bowl game or obviously the playoffs, I think that would be sketchy for someone to pull that. But I don't think we've seen that really. Um what, what was the bowl game McCaffrey set out? I forget. Um, was it a, I'm pulling it up now because it's going to drive me crazy. Was it a major bowl? Because they won the it conference. Was, it was, no, it was the Sun Bowl, but I'm forgetting. Sun um, Bowl, okay, yeah. The second so, player who uh, who opted out. I can't remember if it was Fournette or bottom line, but I'll, I'll look it up. But, yeah, he opted yeah. out the Sun Bowl. It wasn't. Uh, yeah, so that would be a, di- a different story. But I have no problem with these guys. doing the, the, bowl, the bowl games, in a lot of ways, are – you know, they're exhibitions. They are what they are. I think they're important, but I don't think they're end-all to be-all, especially for a kid who wants to protect his body. Um, the bottom line is coaches are allowed to quit. You know, Mario Cristobal quit on Oregon. Every coach that changed teams quit on their team, whether that's, you know, 
the structure of the sport and that's just how it is, fine. They need to change that because literally coaches are quitting to go take other jobs before their seasons are over. And so the idea that a player is supposed to be beholden to their team when they're trying to go to the NFL to play in the Alamo Bowl, give me a break, it just doesn't make any sense. And Mike Leach crying about it as he did just made himself look stupid because he left Oklahoma's offensive coordinator to go be head coach at Texas Tech and didn't coach in that bowl game for Oklahoma. Um, right, it was Oklahoma, right? I believe. Wait, this is yeah. going back a minute. Yeah, yeah, it's going back. Yeah. So coaches do it all the time. Players should be able to do it as well. And the players have more to protect than the coaches do. Coaches aren't going to go out and coach in the bowl game and get injured, right? A player could. So yeah, I'm all for these guys doing this. I, you know, the wide receiver situation at Oregon right now with, with Devin gone, JJ3, Red, and Pittman. I mean, that was your top four receivers coming into the season. Uh, you know, they're in trouble in that game because you already have a sketchy quarterback with a, with a bunch of uh, young receivers running around. But that's another story. But, no, I, I, I'm all for it. Guys, do it. It's a, it's a business decision. Do what's best for you. Playing in the Alamo Bowl isn't going to make or break your draft status. Nobody cares. No, I don't. For To me, any player can choose to do what they want there. If they want to begin their professional training regimen or just playing let their body recover, go ahead. That's their choice. Whatever they, you know, whatever they feel is best for them. That's their choice to do. So I don't... Now, having said that, it's a difference between having no issue with what somebody else chooses to do and then saying, well, if I were in their shoes... Yeah, but I'm not in their shoes. Exactly. I'm, I'm not in their shoes. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a meaningless hypothetical. Literally a meaningless hypothetical. It doesn't matter about what you would do. You're not. Right. They're the ones doing it. these people who say that... If they were in their shoes, they would do the same thing because they would be experiencing a different, oh, different set of variables. Right, but there, there, are some who, there are some who say they would do the same thing. There's some who say, I, I finish out the season and do that, and then, you know, yeah. you worry about it. Worry about it. Okay, well, again, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of, again, you go back a couple of years, and it, it was Fournette as a second player. So McCaffrey and Fournette, they opt out, and it's, oh, well, this is what? Well, it's just going to negatively adversely impact them, and now <laughs> – <laughs> like I say, it's like 50 players out there. And probably we couldn't even remember the bowl. We I mean, look remember at, the bowl that McCaffrey set up. Right, exactly. And you can't really to the point. And you get to, uh, uh, you look at Pitt and Michigan State playing in the Peach Bowl. And the two stars of the game, Kenny Pickett and Kenneth Walker, opt out. Right. And that's a New Year's Six game. Which, you know, for Pitt and Michigan State, pretty big deal. The starting quarterback yeah. and one of the best running backs in the country, both like, yeah, no, nah, I'm good. Take it easy. Yeah, that that I have a little bit of issue with. But you know, again, if you're if you're QB one or could potentially be QB one in the draft, do you need to play in the Peach Bowl? Need to um, against against one of the worst secondaries in the country. And by the way, your offensive coordinator already left for Nebraska. I can't, like I say, I'm not, whatever Kenny Pickett wants to do, I ain't knocking him. If Kenneth Walker says, yeah, I'm good, I, I, you know, take it easy, guys. I'm, I'm not, sorry, I'm not playing Pittsburgh in the Peach Bowl. I'm not getting outraged about it. I'm just not. Yeah. I'm just not. Like, again, it's whatever these guys want to do. I, they're the ones who had to take the hits all season, not me. So whatever they want to do, but it's – Again, it's an everywhere in college football thing. A few years ago, it was two guys. Now it's everywhere. And to that point, as much as Oregon's going to be thin at certain positions, and particularly at receiver and corner, but really receiver even more so. Frankly, at corner, I think they're okay for a game without any major monumental issue. Still five scholarship corners available, so a nickel is going to be <laughs> interesting, potentially. Uh, but they'll, uh, they'll be okay for a game. Where things get dicey is at receiver where they've got six and a couple of them have barely played. So they've really got four. And I know with seven, you know, when you move seven McGee over there, all right, you could say five. Well, again, you can kind of get through the game. And I say kind of because you want to be able to rotate at least six guys. You know, you start getting into numbers, start getting that thin. It's hard. It just is. Um, and when the combined production of we, when you throw McGee in there, I think it's it's under 800 total receiving yards between 
the top five guys who are going to be available. So obviously we know production has been just completely, you know, wiped off the table from a, uh, you know, on paper standpoint. Yes, it's, it's, they're going to have to be leaning on some guys who are far less proven. Having said that, for those who wanted to see a lot of the freshmen at some of these spots anyway, you're going to see a heavy dose of them in, uh, in eight days in the Alamo Bowl for sure. And for that matter, for all the guys who Oregon's going to be missing, Oklahoma's going to be missing four defensive starters, two defensive linemen and two linebackers. Among them are the top three defenders in tackles for loss who combine for 37 and a half tackles for loss. <laughs> so again, we're talking about guys who are in, out, opt-outs, draft declarations and everything else. Oklahoma's without 37 and a half tackles for loss. Their top three most disruptive defenders have opted out of the game. So trying to project or predict what this is going to look like is a complete fool's errand. I mean, there's the, just the, no way. The, 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 well, the one thing, though, is that you know Oklahoma, Oklahoma has a superior quarterback who's extremely dynamic. And he's going to make plays that Brown's not going to make. Or Ty Thompson. That's why, for me, it's like, I can't see how Oklahoma, just there. I mean, yeah, they're both going to lose players, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, at the end of the day, who's got the way better quarterback? Oklahoma, they should win. Especially uh, against the secondary that lost two, two guys and no Kayvon. Like, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna light Oregon up. I'm calling that right now. The only thing I'll say on wrong? Caleb Williams is I think some people have still only see the highs that he had during the season. Mm-hmm. And haven't quite examined as many of the less than stellar performances. Yeah, yeah he's a young kid. He's going to have bad performances, but I, I see a guy who's... Oh, right, it's a small sample regardless, and he didn't he start the whole year. So. He only has four picks, so he's not making... Yeah, but he didn't play the first half of the horrific. season. Well, third of the season. Third of the season. No, I understand that. I'm just saying, so, in 185 pass attempts, he only has four picks. Yeah. And 18 touchdowns, a 166 rating, and he's a pretty damn good runner. I just, I just think he's going to do things Brown can't do. So in a game where each team is missing a bunch of guys, I'm rolling with the quarterback who can make plays. That's oh. where I put my money. Now, of course, this means Ducks going to win by 30, but I'm just telling you what I think. Well, uh, don't, don't, I mean, don't let me wrong. Caleb Williams is obviously a really talented young quarterback. However, the Big 12 is <clears> allergic <throat> to defense outside of. And the Pac-12 is outside it? of Baylor and, and Oklahoma State, and the, the league is allergic it? to defense. Uh, the Pac-12 is top to bottom. Oh, the bottom what, there, there's what, some bad ones. Oh, the bottom there's some. Let real, me ask you a question. Real bad ones. What would, what would Oregon with Oregon's team and its offense and its quarterback? What would their record have been in the SEC? In the SEC, East or West? Six to six. East or West? Either one. No, there's a big difference. Six to six. I know. Okay, so there's, four there's, and eight versus six and six. No. My point being is that. Oregon has has played a lot of bad bad teams this year. That that yeah, ten win season yeah. is arguably the worst ten win season in Oregon history. That's even quite with the, the Ohio State win. That's quite the no, criterion. I'm just saying the worst ten win season. All right, that's the that's worst a, ten win season. Boy, of some, all the ten win, somebody plus season, is not in the plus... Christmas spirit this year. Boy, oh well, boy, actually, that's not a knock. It's just Mr. Grinch. It's still a great. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron is green season. today, folks. He is why green I, and why furry. Why am I being a Grinch? Why am I, he if, has got a lump of coal this, on the desk. If, My goodness. If I'm saying this, that means I'm praising other 10-win seasons. I'm comparing it to other Oregon seasons, so I can't be considered a Grinch. Oof. I'm praising one thing and compared to another thing. They're all Oregon-related. But as far as, you know, the Ohio State win, hey, that was a great win. There's, there's just no doubt about that. But I'm just saying the Pac-12 schedule they faced it's difficult for me to believe that they faced a tougher schedule than Oklahoma did in the Big 12 because let's just you know call it what it was. The Pac-12 was not remotely good this season, especially the North. Um, so anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Let me ask you, I want to ask, before we go, because we, we skipped over this a little bit, I just want to make this one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ty Thompson, he's staying, he's going to compete. That's what he should do. I think he has a great chance to win the job if he develops because he's definitely, you know, extremely talented. Bo Nix could be bridging that gap or someone should just push him. But in the history, and a lot of fans, I don't think, especially New Age fans, don't know about this in general, but the best quarterbacks Oregon has had 
in years usually face stiff competition. Like there was a, there was someone else there to push them. And so that's why this is infinitely good for Ty if he is the next guy because he's going to get pushed to be better than he would have been without Knicks, I believe. So Harrington had to beat out Feely, who ended up in the NFL. Kellen Clemens had to beat out Fife. Dixon had to mature and grow and beat out Leaf. Leaf wasn't great, but Leaf was uh, very intuitive with the offense, and for, that forced Dixon to also raise his level of understanding of the offense, which made him a better player. Mariota had to beat out Bennett, who was a really good player, a capable starter, who could have done great things at Oregon, went on to play FCS, and I think was the Walter Payton Award finalist or won it or something like that, and got a tryout with the uh, Colts. So that, that Bennett pushed Mariota. And then Herbert had to come, you know, people can say what they want about Dakota Prukop, but having that veteran guy with experience that that Herbert had to sort of chase and sort of beat out and chip away at that is something that I had no doubt helped Herbert. So at the end of the day, this is what's best for Ty Thompson is having someone that he really is going to have to mature and grow to beat out. Otherwise, he's just not. At the end of the day, this is good for him. I'm, I'm never against competition, so... In, in in any context, so I, I I'm with you, and I, I no I, I knew the, you would the, be. <laughs> the 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 part about you know whether it be to historical context at Oregon or anywhere else or just in general, I, I again I, I think it was it goes back to what we we're talking about. Everybody has to be in win now mode. Every no no everybody has to have a contingency. So define win At now. Least. When you say win now, you mean when people say win now, are they saying be over five hundred, win the conference, make the playoffs, win the national championship? What exactly is win now? If the, well, it, I think it, it's defined differently at other places. I think it, it's. I know that's the problem. Like I keep hearing Oregon's win now, or the standards win. Okay, win what? What are we talking about? I think for Oregon right now, in the time and place that we're in. I think win now for Dan Lanning in year one is a 10-win caliber season and competing for, if not winning the North and playing for a conference championship. Okay. So so and what that means then is that every move you make is to try and capitalize on now, and you're not thinking about 2023. Because one of the things that, that annoys the hell out of me is people are like, we need to sacrifice this to prepare guys for the next year. No. You're trying to win every game you play. You're not gonna. You're not gonna sit Brown and get Thompson ready for Georgia. Like I just don't think that makes any sense. Um, I do think Ty Thompson might play in this game. I think he should play some in this game, but you obviously should start Brown. But I, I just want to hear what's your version of it because I think some people like have different ideas of what that means. And so yeah, it, it does. And change it's gonna be different from school to school. Things. I think it's exactly. Again, I think. Look again. Well, I'm not, we're not gonna go too far down the rabbit hole. We're talking about the Ducks here. But point is, is I could say the same thing about certain aspects for Oregon State. Now, not in the 10 wins and competing for... No, no, no. I'm talking about now that you've gone through a building process, I think you can make the, you can start to make the case of they need to start shifting their way of doing things insofar as that going to bowl games becomes the minimum standard. Now that you've built it and you've gotten there, that's great. Right. But now you've got to set the standard that that's the minimum acceptable situation and not to go backwards in any way, shape, or form. Um, no matter what, I want to hear about historical context. I want to hear about how well it took this long to get here. No, right, but you're here now. Now it's right. you know now it's sustaining it. So I think for you know it's all about sustaining wherever you are, and for those who are you know who want to get back to wherever they used to be or or yearn for more, sure. But when you're a place who's already there and has been atop of the league and competing for and in the contention for the things that Oregon's been in for you know certainly the last three years. Then winning now means, like I say, I, th- I think in the context of, of the discussion of the here and now moment is maintaining, contending yeah, contending for conference championships. You can't say you have to win a conference championship every year, or it's a, or it's a you know unmitigated failure because that's just absurd. Like this, there's, there's vir- literally, virtually nobody can say that. Virtually nobody can say that because you can come up with ways where again Ohio State, you know, didn't necessarily, whether we're talking about Ohio State or Clemson or Alabama or Georgia even. You know, where you don't necessarily win the conference title, but you can still have a really successful season, maybe even make the playoffs potentially, or go mm-hmm. to a New Year's Six Bowl. So that's why I say, like, you have to draw a little bit of a line there. But ultimately, for Oregon's purposes, yeah, I think it's winning winning the division and competing for a conference championship. When we're talking about the win-now approach. And again, with the way the roster is composed, I think they're totally capable of doing that. But we'll see yeah, first. Especially with... But before we get to the 2022 season, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. There is still the Alamo Bowl. They will play, I oh promise. 
uh, or well, again, with the state of the world at the moment, I, I probably shouldn't be promising there'll be a game in eight days because who knows? But they're scheduled to play a game in eight days, and I will be there in San Antonio at the Alamo Bowl uh, and the Alamo Dome for that one. So, yeah, but it'll be uh, it will be on it is scheduled, etc. So, uh, a shorthanded Oregon against a shorthanded Oklahoma. Uh, for those who, uh, for the Oregon fans who wish that they uh, had a young quarterback like Caleb Williams, uh, who was already playing and doing all those things, well, you get to see him. What can I say? Hope that your defense uh, picks him off like Baylor's defense did, uh, and uh, you know, makes him look like a freshman. What can I say? And that's that's all you can really hope for. You know, yeah, you're without your top two corners and you're without Thibodeau, but frankly, uh, Oregon's defense is still top to bottom more talented than. Most of the defenses Oklahoma played this season, to be quite honest. So they're still going to be challenged. We'll see what happens in the Alamo Bowl. And uh, we'll probably – we'll see you – I can't even tell you when we'll see you next. We're still sorting out when we when we will do the next edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. But we appreciate you for listening all season long, all 2021 long. We appreciate you for listening again all, all season long uh, since we got rolling with this. It's been fun. I certainly wish uh, you and yours a uh, happy and healthy holiday season as well. And I appreciate you again for, for listening. If you don't already subscribe, make sure to subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to give us a five-star review, like, the whole thing, so that way more people can find us. And we will see you at some time in the new year. So have a happy and a healthy, and we will see you next time.